You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is episode 36 of season 3. Episode 101 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today is April 18th, 2021. Today we're going to talk about something fun. We're going to talk about Civilization VI, my favorite game ever. I know it's my favorite game because Steam tells me I've played over 2,800 hours of it. And when I say play, or when Steam rather says I've played that many hours, you got to take that with a grain of salt. That is including a lot of hours of the game just being up and running and me not being actively playing, I'm, I'm, me not at the computer, sitting there. It's just up and I'm waiting for somebody's turn so I'm doing something else or I'm talking with my wife and kids or I'm folding laundry or I go into the next room to clean a dresser or desktop or something like that. But even so... Several thousand hours, a few thousand, almost 3,000 hours of playing this game over the years. I uh, I know it pretty well, but they're about to change everything up. They're going to tweak maybe not all, but most of the civilizations that you can play in the game. But I'll I'll explain, for those who are unfamiliar, I'm going to explain what the game is. And uh, you might be interested. You might check it out if you've got a computer that can play games uh, I would recommend it highly. I enjoy it a lot, and I'll I'll tell you why. But first, the mechanics of the game are as follows. You start out in 4000 BC with a settler and a warrior. There are a couple of civilizations that start out with something a little bit different. You might not get a warrior, and you might get an eagle warrior, or you might get a uh, whatever the... Um, Oh, there's another Native American tribe that gets uh, its own special unit instead of the warrior. The the Cree get their own. But by and large, you get a warrior of some kind. You get a military unit and you get a settler. And what you're supposed to do with your settler is you're supposed to settle a city. I usually try to settle within the first turn. Some people will explore a little bit and they'll try and be more choosy about their starting location. If they don't really love uh, where they're at. Initially, it makes a big difference uh, how you start off. If you start off in a bad location, the way we play it when I'm playing Civilization VI with my friends, we sometimes will give everybody one mulligan, right? Um, not sometimes, always. Always there's that opportunity within the first several turns. If your starting location is awful, you started on Tundra and you can't do anything with it. You started in the desert and you can't do anything with it. You can say redo, and then we refresh the map and try again. So everybody gets a mulligan, and if everybody says they're content with their starting location, you just make the best of it, and you try to make it work. But yesterday I was playing with my cousin Micah, my friend Paul. The three of us played a fair amount of Civilization VI about a year ago and haven't really done as much with it 
in the intervening months. 2020 was a very busy, crazy year. And as the year went on, there were just too many other complicated things to figure out for Civilization VI to feel like a rest from normal life. It was just too much complexity, too much strategizing, too much trying to figure out the tactics of dealing with uh, insanity on the part of the public and people we knew and work situations and how do we figure this out and that and the other thing that all three of us, I think, just didn't really have much of an interest. But before we stepped away from the game for several months last year, we had a huge game in which one of my sons, Eli, and my brother Bryce, and my sister-in-law, Alyssa, and my cousin Micah, and our cousin Sterling, and Paul Pavlik, and a co-worker of mine, J.D. Foster, all of us played one big Civilization Six game, and it was a lot of fun, but it also led to some frustrations I think in part because COVID was happening and there's just enough things that are not going according to plan. I played uh, a little bit of a non-linear, non-direct strategy in that my son Eli was right to my west. I was playing Greece and he was playing Rome. And I sort of used him as a proxy against my brother Bryce. And then Paul was playing... Germany and Micah was playing Japan and I supported Paul in uh, a bid for some cities that Micah had founded to his north and uh, I did so successfully. I did both of those plays successfully and it was pretty much clear that uh, I was going to win if we continued playing and so we ended up just calling it. Everybody collectively agreed. Yeah, Garrett's so far ahead. It, it's going to be his game. He wins. But the game yesterday, very different story. And every game is different. Yesterday I was playing America, and I still am. And we'll, we'll continue that game. But I am second to last. Paul is in last place. Micah is rising up through the ranks. He's third from the top. And a lot of at least why I am doing so poorly, has to do with the way that the game started. And what happened at the beginning of the game is that I found myself nestled between Babylon to my south and Mongolia to my northeast. Kublai Khan attacked me, surprise attacked me, when I didn't have much in the way of defenses uh, ready, and he ended up taking Washington. And so then I'm down to two other cities and I'm trying to crank out units as quick as I can. And it ended up being that he couldn't hold on to Washington. Washington had such poor loyalty to Mongolia and such strong loyalty to me that they ended up rebelling and throwing off Mongol rule. And then the uh, units that came to be, the swordsmen and archers and such that uh, sprang out of that rebellion by Washington ended up driving back Mongolia with help from my units that were coming up from my other two cities. And so we ended up repelling the Mongol invasion. But then I waited. And I knew that at a certain point that rebellion would take Washington from being a free and independent city 
to coming back into the fold of the American Republic. But it takes time. It takes 20 turns sometimes. It takes 15 turns sometimes for your city to come back to you that way if you're just relying on loyalty pressure. And I probably should have just gone in there and and just taken the city. I didn't want to conquer it by force again because then you lose population. And I've already lost some population because Mongolia did that. They took it by force. But eventually the city comes back to me and it has a flood because it's nestled between two rivers, which could be a great thing, except that those rivers flood in that particular case. And so then I get a Mongol invasion in my capital city taken and then a flood in my capital city and we lose some population that wise. And it just really knocked the momentum out of my initial strategy. And as I'm trying to cobble together again my original core um, empire, I'm not expanding. I'm not building cities. I'm not founding uh, new cities and spreading out. And I'm not expanding. So to my south, Babylon is taking advantage of the fact that I'm not expanding. And to my northeast, Mongolia is taking advantage of the fact that I'm not expanding. Eventually, I did catch back up. I got Petra built in the desert. The Mojave Desert now has Petra because that's the way the game works. You can build these world wonders in uh, any city of your empire, regardless of what empire you are. It doesn't have to be the uh, original city that that world wonder belonged to. I could build the Colosseum in America if I want to. You can build the Eiffel Tower in uh, China if you want to. Right, you can you can do anything you want in that regard and culturally appropriate. The trick is to use your civilization's particular benefits and strengths, and to cobble together an empire of cities and alliances. You've got to get luxury resources to keep your people happy. You've got to get strategic resources in order to build special military units. You've got to send exploring units out into the oceans to find good places to colonize and to meet other civilizations. You've got to send scouts out to find natural wonders and world wonders and resources and civilizations and city-states to be suzerains. And so there's all this complexity to the game. There's a lot of mechanics, a lot of complicated uh, perks and benefits and penalties and things like that that you're supposed to combine in a creative, original way And through a combination of uh, building up your technology and developing your government and expanding your territory and improving your tiles, you will gain science and culture and gold and diplomatic points. You'll gain ability to win one of the, I think it's five still, uh, victory conditions. And so there, there's actually more than one way to win the game, and then it becomes a race to see who can win one of those victory conditions first. So the most obvious victory condition, for one, is a domination victory. A domination victory, you don't have to conquer every single city of every single civilization in the game, but you have to conquer the 
capital city of each civilization in the game. You take the capital city for each civilization in the game, and then you win a domination victory. Now that can be tricky. That can be a challenge. It's a logistical challenge. It's a diplomatic challenge. It can be a uh, you know domestic tranquility challenge in that your people will become war-weary. Uh, you'll lose diplomatic points to where you have zero chance. Once you're branded a warmonger, you have zero chance of winning resolutions in the World Congress. So then diplomatic victory is pretty much ruled out early on if you choose the domination route. And because you're dinged on the um, diplomatic front, you might not have such an easy time trading otherwise, trading luxury resources that you have for luxury resources you don't have, selling things for gold to other civilizations, having alliances, things like that. Obviously, if you're taking somebody else's capital city, they don't necessarily want to be allied with you. And so that's not usually the way that I go. In fact, I rarely, if ever, play a domination game, even if I have someone attack me like Mongolia did. What I prefer to do is let them attack, and then I build up my forces, and then I counterattack, and I might conquer them, whoever it was that aggressed against me. And then if other neighboring civilizations start getting nervous and they start calling me the warmonger, I say, okay, well, if you want to denounce me and attack me for having counterattacked somebody that invaded my country, having annexed their territory... Well, then I'll fight you too. You know, <laughs> it just it snowballs from there. You know, once you've absorbed one other empire, then you can pretty much go on and on and on and on for the most part, unless you're up against other empires that have also absorbed other empires. In which case, it can be it can be challenging. But you've got in the ancient game, in the classical era, medieval era, Renaissance era, you've got land units. And then as you get out onto the oceans, you've got naval units. You've got to build up a navy. As you get into the modern era, you also will have an air force. You can eventually do a Manhattan project and build nuclear weapons, atomic weapons. And uh, I've never used an atomic weapon in the game. I just don't like it. I'm not a fan of it. I can't do it in good conscience. And that brings me to another point, which is that I try to play this game for the most part, in a way where I can have a good conscience about it. If I don't feel like it's sporting, and if I don't feel like I can come up with a legitimate moral reason why this would be okay in the real world, then I will probably not do it in the game either. And so I don't do atomic weapons. I don't do nuclear weapons. I hate it when other people do (laughs) atomic weapons and nuclear weapons. I just don't like it. And actually... In general, there is a penalty uh, with the AI if you use nuclear weapons. Other civilizations will denounce you. And uh, it's similar to the world domination piece. Uh, If you're using nuclear weapons, you're probably not worried about trying to win a diplomatic victory. You're probably okay with just uh, punching all comers and, and taking the domination route. Or you might parlay the domination route into a science victory because you absorb a couple of other civilizations and their territories. 
and all of a sudden your science output and your production output and your trade networks and all these things are just through the roof and you're so far ahead of everybody else that you can win a science victory. And when you win a science victory, it goes like this. You get to the modern era, you build a spaceport, and you have to get the prerequisite technology, obviously, but then you launch an Earth satellite, you launch a moon program to go you know, send a man to the moon, and then after that, you're building a Mars program to where you're going to send a mission to Mars or to Alpha Centauri as the older versions of the game used to have it. You're sending a colony. You're going to go colonize some other planet. And so then once you've launched this, you have ways you can speed it up. And it, it's a space race, right? That's the technology route. If you win the space race, you win the technology victory. There's also a cultural victory where your culture becomes the dominant culture because you have pursued the collection of art and world wonders and you've got more tourists than everybody else does and you achieve a cultural victory if you go that route. You can win a diplomatic victory if you get 20 diplomatic victory points and you can get those in various ways. You can get those by aiding other nations when they have natural disasters, uh, aiding in um, other scenarios. I'm trying to think of what they all are. I've never won a diplomatic victory. I've gotten close. Actually, I've probably gotten the closest playing America with the way that I was playing with them. But that is another option. You can win resolutions in the World Congress. And uh, every time a World Congress resolution goes the way that you voted, you get a diplomatic victory point. So once you get to 20, you win. Um, as you get later in the game, everybody else gets to vote on whether you gain diplomatic victory points or lose them. And so then you kind of have to have enough diplomatic victory points to stave off the rest of the world whittling you down to size. Uh, so that makes it challenging. You really have to have a, uh, a corner on the market on diplomatic victory points in order to achieve that, as it seems to me, at least theoretically, uh, since I've never won it before. Uh, I think lastly, you can win a religious victory because that's another component in the game. There can only be so many major world religions, and it's based off of how many civilizations there are. There can be fewer major world religions than there are total civilizations in the game. And so early in the in the game, you have to race to some extent to get a world religion because if you don't act while supplies last you will not be able to get one and then you're kind of just at the mercy of everybody else and their apostles and their missionaries coming into your land or they're just passive uh, religious pressure from their cities that are already converted and if you get a good religion with good perks then great and if you don't get such a great religion then tough you know um, each of the religions, it basically is just, it's a mix and match. So you get to pick what your core beliefs are and what is distinctive about your religion. And you get certain benefits that come along with that. Now, there's an opportunity cost in that there's no real downside necessarily, except that some benefits are more useful than others. And some are just pretty much downright useless. And if you pick the useless ones and other people have the really useful ones, well, then by contrast, your religion is not so great. It's not so practical. But 
I typically create my own religion. I've got the uh, the lion's head is my uh, emblem. If you pick one of the traditional conventional religions, you can just you know choose Protestantism or Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholicism or Buddhism, uh, Shinto, you know those kinds of religions. Uh, but I choose the lion head for the line of Judah, and I call my religion The Way, which has gotten funnier ever since the Mandalorian show came out on Disney+, Plus, because that is the saying of the Mandalorians, their particular uh, religious um, sect or whatever on Mandalore is The Way, and they say, this is The Way. And they repeat it back to each other when they're about to do something that's really dumb, but they're honor-bound to do it anyway. This is the way. And uh, so that's what my religion is, is the way. I like stewardship. I like scripture. And, uh, you know, depending on how the game is going, I might choose some other religious belief. But I get my religion and work ethic and stewardship and scripture uh, ends up meaning that I get production bonuses out of my holy sites and I get a little bit extra uh, benefit when I'm trying to build things because usually holy sites produce faith but if you have work ethic then they produce just as much production as they produce faith and I really like that I like that perk I like that bonus if I can get production and then double the faith uh, output of my holy sites well then I'm also doubling the production output and so then that early on gives me a production boost, helps me to build other things. I had to spread out, spread my empire, spread my religion. I don't really try for a religious victory. I've never tried for a religious victory. It's enough for me to just stop other people from trying to convert my empire. I want my people to follow the way. I'm not trying to take over the world, but don't you go bringing Islam into Garrett's empire because the apostles of the way are going to bring down lightning from heaven and let you know <laughs> who, who our God is. It is not Allah. Uh, don't go bringing Buddhism in here. You keep your missionaries of Buddhism to yourself. If they come around here, they're going to get zapped. Um, so anyway, just a funny little quirk in the game. But there's all kinds of ways that people play, obviously, with as many civilizations as there, as there are. And there's a whole lot. I don't even know. There's dozens that you can play that are from different periods. And they each get led by some famous um, character, some famous leader from their history. Uh, if I'm playing America, I'm playing Teddy Roosevelt. And in the case of uh, Mongolia, this game that I was playing yesterday with Micah and Paul, Mongolia to my northeast is led by Kublai Khan. And Babylon to my south is led by Nebuchadnezzar. And so you get these weird interactions, these funny, anachronistic, uh, out-of-time-and-space, eclectic interactions where America has to hold its own against Babylon, which, because of its technological advantages, is able to spring way ahead of everybody else on technology early. And Mongolia, which because of its uh, militaristic uh, cavalry, is able to do these rapid attacks out of nowhere. And it, 
the AI when it plays Kublai Khan is very aggressive. And so he's got cavalry and he intends to use them against you if you leave an opening. And so now Teddy Roosevelt's got to hold off Babylon to his south, Kublai Khan to his northeast, and he's going to build Petra to make use of his desert tiles as part of how he does that. He's going to build some dams on the rivers to stop those from flooding over and over and over again. He's going to try and build preserves to uh, make the most of his uh, appealing tiles. You know, that's one of the benefits that Teddy Roosevelt has. If you're playing Bull Moose, Teddy Roosevelt, there's two variations. There's Bull Moose, and then there's also Rough Rider. Rough Rider is the fighting Teddy Roosevelt who gets benefits to fighting on his home continent. And then there's Bull Moose who gets these massive benefits to breathtaking and charming tiles in the game. And that's another thing is tiles have appeal. Tiles that are right up against a natural wonder and you've got a view of the mountains or the reef or whatever, uh, they can be just very beautiful. And if you build neighborhoods in those places, you get extra housing. More people want to live in those places, obviously, than if you build them in the middle of a marshy, uh, ugly, nasty uh, industrial wasteland. And so Teddy Roosevelt gets extra science and culture and faith from having these preserves, which are a district. You build this preserve next to already attractive uh, tiles, and you just leave those tiles undeveloped. You build a grove and a sanctuary and those kinds of things. And all of a sudden, you're cranking out a ridiculous amount of science and culture and faith and production and food from tiles that otherwise are undeveloped. Well, they're developed, according to Teddy Roosevelt, because they're set aside for posterity, for research, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I get to play the game a bit differently as America. But it's fun to me watching how my sons have played the game. They haven't played it for a while, but when they have played it, I enjoy watching over their shoulder and seeing how they're playing it, trying to give them some tips and tricks, but also trying to let them play as independently as possible. How are they playing it? What are they doing here? How are they going about it? It's fun to see how they get creative with it. Uh, when I play with Micah, and I've played with Micah and Sterling for a long time, for years and years, and so I know that they have their own play style, their own personality comes out. I played with my brother-in-law, Todd Thomas, once upon a time, a couple of times, saw his personality come out. He was right away, as soon as he meets somebody, declare war. Uh, also, my boys were doing that. As soon as they meet somebody, they declare war, and it's on, right? And then you find out, well, shoot, you know, when I put everything into building military units, I might not have enough uh, other things built to have an economy when I get back from this war that I may not win. I may not win if I don't have the advanced units that are able to conclude battle decisively and quickly. Uh, this might not actually succeed. I might not take that city. I might lose all my troops. I might get just bogged down in this quagmire wherein I'm sending unit after unit after unit and everybody else is investing in granaries and building farms and building mines and campuses and holy sites and they've got a religion established and they've built a commercial district and now they've got trade routes going, building in you know, gold 
if it's a foreign international trade route or production and food if it's a domestic trade route you know you stall out well my wife plays it with me and she's asking me pretty much at every turning point sorry honey she's asking me at every turning point hey what do i do here okay well now what do i choose well honey you you choose whatever you want to choose there well yeah but but what would be the best thing to choose well it all depends on your strategy you're gonna have to come up with a strategy and what what do you want to do well i don't know what should i want to do okay well, you know, um, once she got kind of a feel for the game, she was more independent. But initially, it's like, well, hey, I'm just going to ask my husband what he thinks here. Well, honey, I want you to express yourself. Well, I, she's expressing herself. That, that's the, the long and short of it is she was expressing her trust in me, her love for me, and uh, and asking me how to go about playing the game. My coworker, J.D. Foster, he jumps in and he's getting really creative and he's sometimes being pretty aggressive, but otherwise he's really building up his economy and he's being uh, selective in the way that he times an attack or an expansion or whatever. And Paul, meanwhile, he's playing and he wants to explore and he's trying out some different things, but he's being very careful in the way that he does it. And he's going to play on principle. And uh, so long story short, you, you get these various people who are playing in these different ways. And I just think it's, I think it's fun. I think it's fun to see how people's personalities come out as they're playing a game that's very open-ended. <coughs> I mean, you can choose to be militaristic. You can choose to be scientific. You can choose to be commercial. You can choose to be diplomatic. You can be religious. And because there are so many things that you could be, you have to make some decisions as to how you're going to focus yourself. If you don't focus on anything and you're just a generalist, well, then you're not going to be exceptional and you're going to be pretty middle of the road and you're going to miss out on some of the things that are just one-offs. There can only be one Eiffel Tower even though anybody can make it. There can only be so many religions even though anyone can have a religion, the timing of when things become available and how quickly you act on them is a, a forced decision maker. You come to these forks in the road and you've got to choose which way you're going to go or it's going to be chosen for you. Your options are going to get narrowed down. And if you can race to those forks in the road, you have your pick of the litter, really. But if everybody else races you first and then you have natural disasters that are befalling you, you have a, a hurricane hits and it knocks out everything, kills your people, destroys your improvements, you got to figure out how to have a little bit extra in reserve to be able to bounce back from that, to repair that. Depending on who your governors are, you can appoint governors with certain specialties. That's an additional layer of complexity to the game. You can appoint certain governors to certain cities and they have certain advantages. So then this city, I'm going to be really focused on production. And so I'm going to appoint Magnus to be the governor here because his skill set is such that he makes the most of the production capabilities of this city. And I'm going to appoint my other governors in these other places because this one, this city needs to be commercial. Okay, I'm going to put her in there because she's very commercial. This one needs to be a religious center. 
if I'm going to keep from getting converted by my neighboring Buddhists. So I'm going to put uh, Mokshi or whatever his name is, the bald guy, I'm going to put him as a governor here, and he's going to help me to hold on to the way and not get converted to Buddhism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fun game. It's a really fun game. Yesterday I was not having a whole lot of fun because I'm in second to last place, and it's just not going the way that I usually like my Civ games to go. I like it preferably if I'm in the middle of the pack and I've got some catch-up to do, but being in front the whole time is daunting because you become a bit of a target. Everybody's got it out for you. If you're way ahead, then people don't want to trade with you, and it kind of limits your options just because everybody's trying to box you out of the opportunities that you have otherwise if you're kind of middle of the road in the middle of the game. But you want to be middle of the road for score and for other things until you have a clear path, and then you book it. Then you make a mad dash from that point until the end. And uh, you try and get everybody else's number, figure out what it is that they're trying to do. What's their angle here? How are they trying to play? What's their objective? How do I guard against that? Do I need to guard against that? Or can I get my objective accomplished before they get their objective accomplished? Uh, But it's a long, long game, right? I'm taking... Half an hour, I could take a lot longer to talk about the mechanics of who I like to play and who I don't, who I'd never play, who I almost always would play, except sometimes it's too easy when you play them because their advantages are just too conducive. And then other people cry foul and they say, well, that's not fair, right? Um, (laughs) I could go on and on and on about this game, obviously having played almost 3,000 hours. But the big thing is, I think that it's good to have games like this that slow us down. You know, you could say, when you look at it, wow, man, that's a lot of time, right? You, you spend a lot of time playing this game. But I, I really don't think that that's the downside. I think that that's the upside. If you are concerned with the short attention spans that are so prevalent in our society. Now, yesterday I was really frustrated because not only was my game not going so well, but I was having technical difficulties. And they've just rolled out a whole bunch of updates to the game here recently. They're trying to figure out cross-platform compatibility issues. They want to make it where somebody playing on Steam and Epic Games and the Xbox, et cetera, et cetera, they're all able to play together because there's a uniformity of how the game works. I think that that's introduced a lot of stability issues when you're playing a multiplayer game, even though we're all playing on Steam, we're all playing on PCs. My game kept crashing over and over and over and over and over again yesterday. It was super frustrating. But otherwise, and even so, attention spans for games that you can master in five minutes, uh, I think are maybe not so conducive to collective well-being to personal well-being to our spiritual well-being i mean yes sometimes we need to have a sense of urgency and you need to not take hours and days to make a decision i get that but right now do we have more people that are making decisions on snap judgments thinking with their feelings impulsively 
Or do we have more people who are taking too long, right? They just never can come to a decision. I think, I think the former is the case. I think we have people that are being impulsive and they're just wanting what they want and they're not really engaging their brains. They're not being rational about this. The truth is not so much a value to most people. And yet when you play a strategic game, uh, you have to really crunch the numbers. You have to do the math. Well, hey, if I do this and this and this and this, it adds up to that. And then I get this multiplier. And objectively, 2 plus 2 equals 4, it will have this effect. It'll have this result that I want. Yet there might be nearly endless combinations of things that I could do. And somebody could say, well, that, that's very pluralistic and I don't like that. But at the end of the day, it's very objective and it's very narrow in the sense that there's math, right? You can't escape the math of the game. I don't like the emphasis that they've put on global warming. It's a ridiculous thing, by the way. Don't, don't get me started on that. I could do a whole podcast just on being frustrated with the global warming propaganda that was baked into one of the expansions for Civilization VI. Long story short, you get to the industrial era, you build factories, you build power plants, you get coal, you burn the coal in your power plants and it gives you production boosts in your industrial and, and later era uh, buildings. You get more output. Imagine that when you put electricity to your factory. And the way the game works is it keeps track of how much CO2 you've put into the atmosphere and then the ice caps, uh, your north and south poles, the, the glacier ice will melt and the sea levels will rise and then coastlands will actually go underwater. And you'll lose things. If you build on the coasts, which can be very beneficial, you lose land as the, the sea levels rise. I think that's stupid. I hate it. I hate, hate, hate it because once I get the ability to build a coal power plant, I want to build coal power plants. I don't want to worry about global warming. And in real life, that's not realistic. That it doesn't quite work that way to where I fire up two or three coal-fired power plants and all of a sudden the coastlands are disappearing because they went underwater. It's, you know, come on. But anyway, alas, I digress. It's, uh, it's a late time maybe to get into this game, but there's a lot. There's a lot there. Uh, visuals are pretty, I think. Um, it's kind of a laid-back uh, art style to the game. A little bit cartoonish. Scaling is a little bit wonky. But it plays like a, a board game. It's strategy. It's turn-based. You take turns. Um, and so I really like it as a husband and a father because I can get up at any point and I can walk away if I need to. If I need to go talk with my wife and kids, I need to take a phone call, I need to check something else. I need to do some research, I need to do some reading, I'm listening to something, I'm paying bills, whatever. I could do that, and my turn is waiting for me when I come back, as long as my computer doesn't crash, that is. So check it out, check out Civilization VI. I had a lot of fun playing it over the years with my family, with my friends, and uh, it's got some bugs right now, some stability issues, but they'll get them figured out, as they always do. Single player still works just fine, so if you haven't tried it out yet, you could learn to play single player. Haven't been having any issues on that front. But that's all I have for this episode. 
As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.